Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello and welcome to the game. I'm Gabriel Marcotti with a football podcast from The Times, where Premier League fans can get every goal, every game, everywhere. Now, first off, a quick reminder that you can join the football debate at our live show in Newcastle on November 20th. You might even be able to meet George Culkin in the flesh and have your photograph taken with him. Tickets will cost £5 for Times Plus members and £7.50 for non-members. To book, please visit www.ctickets, that's S-E-E tickets, dot com slash the times. Or better yet, just call 0871-620-4025. But be quick about it because tickets are going fast. Anyway, back to the present and a big welcome to my guests, Tony Cascarino, Jim Proudfoot, and from beautiful downtown Barnes, it's Allison Rudd. Allison, let's start with you since you're filling in for Tony Evans, who can't make it today, and uh, he's a football editor, he's our boss. He would have gone first, so it's your turn. United and Arsenal, uh, 1-0 win for Davy Moyes' men. Is this a turning point? I don't think it's a turning point for Arsenal particularly. I think um, there's a convergence of a lot of things going wrong for them, and if they've got any sense at all they'll they'll go away and think well we just got the really bad game out of our system for United I think it was a turning point they've been lucky in a way the crowd have supported them when they've looked a little bit fragile and a little bit lost and they really responded when they looked a bit grittier I think people speak about how Arsenal are over-reliant on only having one fit striker in Giroud uh, United are over-reliant on Van Persie and Rooney firing. But under Moyes, when you've looked at United, there's been at least two or three players where you thought, what are they doing in the United side? And that, that, that squad isn't strong enough. And it's been really easy to have a right go at, at several players. But every single player, they were, okay. they were good. They were good. They worked hard. There might not have been a lot of flair going on there, but they worked incredibly hard. And I think they really sucked up the fact they could tell that Arsenal were, as Wenger said, nervous and um, they went for the jugular. It was quite interesting. They went for the jugular almost just the once and then once they got the lead, they just made sure that they defended well and stoically and it was a deserved 1-0 victory. Cass, on this issue of, you know, you look at players and you say, what are you, what are they doing in the United side? Uh, Mm. Once Vidic went off, if you really want it to be negative... 
you know, you could look at Smalling and Jones and Evans and uh, I guess Fellaini came on at the end uh, and Cleverly and Valencia. And you could get kind of down and conclude that, well, Van Persie and, and Rooney are the difference makers and the other guys are just kind of there to uh, to kind of make sure that they don't concede. Yeah. Would that be harsh? Um, I think slightly harsh because I did think the victory was based on what really Alison touched on is sweat, blood, you know, just passion, desire, a hunger that was there for everybody to this see. This is Manchester United, though. Should it not be based on having good players? Yeah, it, well, they do. They do have good players. But they players. don't. They have those guys I mentioned. I, I mean, I'm sorry. I don't mean to say they don't, but... Let me put it a different way. If you go back a few years, yeah. and it was Vidic in his pomp, you know, not older Vidic who gets hurt, Ferdinand in his pomp, Gary Neville in his pomp, Scholes and young Giggs mm. and Beckham. You look at this now, it's, 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 it's undeniably different, I think. Mm. Oh, I'd, I'd agree with you. I think that you've got a valid point that, you know, this is a United team that, if we judge on the season so far... Have been indifferent, Gab. Even in the Champions League, the victory against Bayer Leverkusen, Raul Sociedad, and you know, real average performances. This was probably the best of the season so far, wasn't it, for them? Especially first half, the way they sort of manoeuvred to out physical Arsenal in every department, which worked. Yeah, they are. I think Smalling's a you know, as a right back, I think he lacks quality on the ball, but it gives them a, a sense of you know a physical aspect as, as much as what I thought Moyes selected his team to intimidate and bully Arsenal slightly. I could look at other players in the team and I totally agree with you and think you know Johnny Evans is he the uh, the class of Rio and Vidic? Absolutely not. I don't think there's a debate there. Is Jones ready to step up to the plate of being a midfielder like Keane? Nowhere near. So they're, they're well short, but they have got two guys that, like we touched on before, up front that can win them games and turn them. And again, they did it at Fulham and they've done it with Van Persie's goal. It's, you know, we always say average United teams. I think there's a lot of guys who are lucky to wear United shirts on a regular basis. Were you going to name some names for me? Well, I just did. What did I say? Smalling, Johnny Evans. You know, Valencia in well, and out. Johnny Evans is a squad defender, right? Well, he's a squad defender West that's finding himself going to probably play a lot of games this year, Gab. Uh, this season, I think he'll play a lot of football. Jim, were you were you expecting a more buccaneering United, or do you, do you say that did you kind of conclude that you know Moyes is comfortable playing this way? I didn't think that there would be so few chances created, and that when it comes down to it, that basically Arsenal would be beaten with their failure to defend one set piece, and that would be the the sum total of the game. I thought that Manchester United probably played to the strengths of the manager, and to a large extent to the strengths of the team. And there's no point in sending his team out as a, as a buccaneering team if, if the general consensus of opinion amongst us all is that there are a number of players in the United side who probably in many other years wouldn't be playing for Manchester United so I think he's got to he's, he's got to try and put round pegs in round holes he did that to a large extent you don't necessarily need phenomenal players to to go and, and play with a more attacking style I mean I agree with you that, that, that Moyes needs to play the way he's comfortable but you know you could have found room for, for people like, like Nani or, or Welbeck you could have played cleverly in midfield if you instead of Jones for example and I mean there, there are things that he could have done if if he were so inclined. If he were so inclined. But the bro- the bottom line is Gab, and uh, I know you're only being devil's advocate, he set out a side that he thought could win that game. And Arsenal are a very good footballing team. How do you win a game? It's not just about um, being more buccaneering than the opposition. It's about stopping the opposition scoring. And, and that is the way on which David Moyes has based much of his managerial success. And I'm sure 
it will continue to be the way on which he will build on much of his managerial success because he is a more conservative manager than his predecessor, and there's no getting away from that. When we saw that goal from uh, from Van Persie, two things came to mind. Uh, one was, uh, boy, with Mertesacker, that probably would not have happened. And, 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 and frankly... That's one of those weird Wenger things where you you know replace a guy who's six foot six, six foot seven, with a guy who is listed as six foot, but it's probably smaller than that. And Thomas Vermaelen. But the other thing is, I'm mean, like, here comes the whole like zonal marking, man marking, Paul Hoffer once again. Now I humbly submit to you, Cass, that the problem here isn't zonal marking, um, because man for man, Arsenal is a smaller team than uh, uh, than United, and had they gone man for man, it might have been beaten anyway, or probably would have been. It's just that if you're going to mark zonally, they executed it about as badly as they could have. It was incredible for me to watch, Gab, where I'm watching three or four United players have no one within them three yards in an 18-yard penalty area. They can all literally pick, run and jump, get leverage and get a free header. Now, anybody that's headed the ball, and I headed a lot, is all three of you would know, (laughs) that if you get challenged or you're opposed or you have someone tight to you to make it difficult, it's very hard to get a perfectly timed header and controlled header. Now, Van Persie, when he made the run, he was one of four that could have scored there. He would totally... the, The ability to... Not defend against that. I thought I couldn't believe what I saw when I watched the the goal again. I was thinking, really? If that, that's something they must have worked on, they must have set up like this in training. And it's so easy to play against. Did, or, did you figure out what Ramsey was doing as well? Well, I think he, Ramsey was up against Van Persie, wasn't he? Yeah, but he, he Ramsey steps so, towards the ball as it comes, and it just goes over his head. Yeah, well, it's, Gap, you've got to be. I mean, it's it's something. It's so. I, w- I hated being marked and met being marked tightly because it was so hard to get that half a yard's difference. So, you know, you felt players could always, even if they did get close to you, you got a free header. That nine times out of ten, you'd be a little bit more off-balanced. And watching the goal again, it's ended up costing them dearly because like Jim and, and, we've all, and Alison, we've all said the game was hanging in a balance and, and basically got one zonal marking goal. I've never seen a team win a major tournament or premiership or a top flight competition doing zonal marking and yet I've seen teams do it and very good teams do it. Now, uh, JP, Wayne Rooney was praised to high heaven for his, uh, for his work rate. I almost wondered if they weren't getting a little bit carried away because they showed him at one point, like, he hits this cross-wheel, cross-field ball behind Kagawa and Kagawa has to like kind of run back to get it and they're like oh look at him you know feathering the ball across the pitch there was obviously no issue with his with his stamina with his intensity um and and he did make a big contribution that being the case why is it is is, is he just fitter now or was a lot of the issues that he was having last year when people blamed his fitness and whatever else were they should they maybe not have been blaming his fitness and maybe blaming something else instead I don't know, that's a difficult question, Gab, uh, to be honest. I think he is fitter. Um, whether he's done more sort of specific, individually tailored conditioning work over the summer, I don't know. But he does look fitter. He certainly had the intensity that perhaps has been lacking in previous games. But you're right, it might be down to other factors. It might have been down to the fact that at some, you know, at some level he was disaffected last season and that was having a ramification on his performance. I don't know. I really, I really don't know it would be speculation either way but the bottom line is that it has to be good for Manchester United that he was able to produce the kind of performance he did yesterday and yeah I agree with you that 
uh, a lot of the praise really was sort of gushing in the extreme and, and uh, you know, David Moyes was praising him to high heaven as well. I think it was a, a, an outstanding performance by Wayne Rooney, but I don't necessarily think that there was the necessity for the, the hyperbole about it that perhaps was received. Cass, on, on Rooney's fitness, I mean, uh, uh, JP very honest there, says he doesn't know. Do you know? I mean, is, well, one of the things which struck me in his last year was his fitness issue. People were saying, oh, look, he's fat, he's not a good athlete, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And I always thought, like, no, actually, he's, yeah. this guy works his rear end off, often manages to remain <coughs> lucid and focused while doing so. And, I mean, is, is, this, is, is there some kind of marked improvement here? That- I was in Vegas a few years back. Wayne was there. Wayne lived his life to the full. Uh, on a regular basis, night in, night out, and he certainly knew how to party off the field. And I think there's times when Wayne does that. And I think, well, the Wayne we saw in the 2006 World Cup, where he was completely unfit, Wayne, unfortunately, and like myself, I needed my backside kicked regular, trained hard, as hard as I could, to get the best out of me. And I was never the levels of Wayne Rooney, but unfortunately for Wayne, he gets a big posterior. So if he's not worked his socks off, and I think there's been times where he's not dedicated his life to football as much as he should have, and then you see a different Wayne Rooney. When you see him like he is yesterday, it, you're, you're absolutely spot on. It wasn't a performance of a magician, technically superb. It was a guy that showed his touch can be good, his work rate changed you know, a lot of attacks for United and the things that happen in the game. And I think when Wayne's like that, I think he's a hell of a good player. How long will it last? I don't know. I always feel that there's always a turning point. If I was Roy Hodgson, I'd have him man-to-man marked after the end of the season, have a bodyguard with him and mark him wherever he went, not letting him go off the rails because he did it in, oh, I think the last competition. He went 10 days to Vegas before the last competition. Was it the, the World Cup? And Wayne came and played the World Cup and it was like he was a different player, he was a different person. He has to stay on top of his game, and that means physically. And then I think you've got a much different animal. All right, enough United and Arsenal, um, because our producer, who's filling in for Skinner, um, is telling me to move on. Uh, clearly, he's more interested in talking Sunderland and City rather than uh, uh, the league leaders and the biggest team in uh, Britain. Now, City go to the Stadium of Light, and they lose to a Sunderland team that are supposed to be awful. It's the fourth consecutive year, I believe, uh, Alison, do you believe in weird cosmic karma or is this just happenstance? I don't think it's cosmic. I think it's yet another example of how Manchester City go away from home as if they are going into a vacuum. They, they, there's this very peculiar attitude they seem to have that you, you go somewhere and you don't think about where you're going. I mean, they did not behave like a team that knew... It would be full of passion and full of optimism because of the um, recent results over the last couple of years. And it was a team that desperately needed a win and it had a new manager and their home form has has suddenly become something worth that's notable, that they seem to be... Gus Poyer seems to have got it right at home. None of these things appeared to have occurred to City. There's... Uh, it's like looking at a, a painting where the colours are muted. The, the, the city are full of players, are full of vibrancy and exquisite skill and flair. And it's like they're doing football by numbers when they go away from home. Uh, oh. Like, oh, well, we, we're just so good. We're just so good, aren't we? That we just keep passing the, b- the ball around. It'll happen. And it's as though they're shocked by any tough tackling or any stoic defending or any passion on the pitch or in the stands. It's peculiar because you think you might make that mistake once, especially under a new manager, but you don't keep making the same mistake. 
mean, it's good well, to have faith. It's good to have faith in your ability and to think, yeah, we are utterly the class team of the Premier League. We shouldn't have to take into account the way the opposition works, especially if they're in the bottom half of the table. But that's that's what a good manager does. He goes somewhere and he thinks they're going to dictate things because they're at home. We can't. We can't. We can't just let them do that. And yet they do. All right, so I'm going to put on my Manuel Pellegrini hat because I'm sure, because I read his excellent, uh, or watched his excellent Monday uh, inquest uh, in, in, in Times Online. So I imagine Castle have words of praise for Brown and O'Shea. So before we get to that, um, I want to throw this to you, JP, because I'm going to put on my Pellegrini hat. I'm going to defend Pellegrini here, right? Sebastian right. Larson goes in, sives down Javi Garcia in any normal uh, circumstance in the world with any normal referee in any normal country. He's sent off, and then we're talking a different game. Ooh, Phil Bardsley, isn't he great? Look, he's not drunk, and he's not lying around the casino. Okay, yeah, he also fouled James Milner in the build-up to the goal, and that goal should have never stood, and if he tries to shoot like that again, never in a month of Sundays does he, does he score. City boss possession by a billion miles. They create a million more chances, uh, roughly speaking, than the opposition. Pellegrini comes out after the game and says he's not concerned at all. He doesn't need to change anything because they're outplaying the opposition, and sometimes you just happen to lose. I mean, is it, should, what, what should he have done differently? Is he wrong? No. In essence, he's not wrong. If you look at it like that, there were mitigating circumstances behind the defeat. But I've commentated on all four of City's defeats away from home so far this season. I would say that this is the most galling. This is the one where they've played the worst of the four. At Cardiff, uh, they showed that they couldn't defend the set-piece um, which obviously was inexplicable to some extent, but then you looked at the personnel that was there, and perhaps it was a little bit. There was a, a greater explanation than uh, you know, uh, maybe first appeared. Then they lose at Villa, where nineteen times out of twenty they've outplayed Villa so much they win that game, and Joe Hart was at fault for two of the goals at Chelsea. There was that late brainstorm, and in many ways they were the better side over about an hour of that game. This game. Albeit the fact, I totally agree with you, the the fact that Mike Dean didn't send off Larson was completely inexplicable. I cannot remotely understand what he thought he saw. And then to book Javi Garcia for a, a little petulant flick out uh, five minutes later, it was just completely inexplicable. Really bad refereeing. Uh, I think that that was a worse decision than... Uh, allowing the goal to stand when Bardsley has come together with Milner and many referees would have given a free kick to Manchester City for that as well on the edge of the penalty area. So Pellegrini is right to a certain extent and he can look at various things, but it's happened in four of their six away games. So that would suggest that there is a more deep-rooted and deep-lying problem than just, do you know what, we were unlucky. You're going uh, you're, you're to wax lyrical about uh, all your Irish friends, no, right? No, I'm not going to wax lyrical. One thing that stood out for me... And despite what we're saying, and Jim and Alison, and you know, we're all talking about Man City and how brilliant they've been, and and Jim's, you know, t- gave a perfect description of what I've seen for them away from home. But do you know what stands out for me? They're not a laid-back approach to acceptance of a defeat. It's like, well, we played well, yeah, we played well, and everything's fine, yeah, and if we play like that again, we'll win. Well, unfortunately, they've lost four games on the road, and everyone has a telling story to the way they've been beaten. So I find that strange to hear a manager talk in that manner. Maybe where, he's confident that they're going to regress to the well, mean. He, he's going to have to be. So what happens if it happens on the next time on the road? They play better than they do yesterday, and, and then they, they don't win the game. And they'll say, they well, been we had 24 chances. We didn't convert them. My strikers didn't do what they were good. You, know, you, can't, you can't get away with that, Gab. 
a, a big football club. So, sorry, so what's he supposed to do? Like go freak out and rant and rave and say, like, we're all rubbish, change uh, the team, tell, put no, Jovetic back on. No, I mean, what, no, you don't, do? you don't. But I'll tell you what, it, there was an often acceptance of a, a defeat. I, I didn't like that. I felt there should be far more... See, it, 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 it's interesting because you, you introduce an interesting theme here. I mean, um, I believe we all have kids, actually. But, you know, something when, when your kid misbehaves or screws up, I think as a parent, Pellegrini's a parent too, uh, of, of little Agueros and Lescots, do you react by reading them the riot act or do you react by saying, look, you did your best, you were actually unlucky on the day, don't change the way you're preparing for, for your exam or whatever else? Hmm. Alison? This is a really good point. The reason he's not chastising them is I don't think they're doing what he hasn't asked them to do. He, they are going into these matches in a very calm mindset with a great deal of confidence in the system that they play and the talent that they have. I doubt very much anything happened at the Stadium of Light that he felt that they'd let him down because he'd asked them to do one thing and they did something else on an individual level. I, I, I don't think particularly that, that anyone had a, a, a poor game or, or made crass errors. I, I think it's a, I think what he should have done is come out and said, I have got it wrong. Jim, I want to throw this to you, though, because I, one thing that strikes me is it's all fine and good to, to talk about this. Ultimately, it's the players on the pitch. And at the risk of being harsh here, it's one thing to have Vincent Company in his pomp and uh, uh, young Mr. Nasty alongside him. It's quite a different one to have Jolien Lescott and Martin de Michelis. There's a reason Lescott's the fifth-choice centre-half or whatever he is at Manchester City. And there's a reason that Martin de Michelis was basically, his career was basically over. And then, you know, he went to Balaga, the mini-revival. But, you know, it's still an older, I think, rather limited player. Should they have maybe signed another centre-half or yeah. playing Yaya Torre back there or, 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 or whatever? Because it's, it's pretty absurd when you look at the wealth of options and qualities at one end of the pitch and at the other end when, when those two guys aren't there. They should have gone out and bought another centre-half and it's not as if there's a, a, a hugely limited budget and that every pound that's being spent is, is being scrutinised through a microscope from those in the corridors of power. That just isn't the case. And they have left themselves short. I've no doubt in January they'll go out and buy somebody, but the problem is they might have lost another three or four games away from home by then. They desperately need another centre-half because the two that played yesterday aren't good enough probably individually, but certainly in tandem. Final words on, on, on Gus Poyet, because uh, obviously we've been down the road of Sunderland and you know Martin O'Neill in his inevitably Cassie way goes back and has a go at the previous manager mm. and yuck, yuck, yuck. And, and the funny thing I've had the call say, I wish I could have signed 15 players like he did. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, he didn't sign them and they all broke, and actually Sunderland broke even in, in terms of transfers. Um, all you did was go and spend uh, a lot of money uh, like you've always done throughout right. most of your career. But anyway, uh, enough of him. Um, Gus, can you keep them up? Anybody want to go on? Give me some percentages and some reasons why, starting with you, Alison. A hundred percent, yes. Jim, um, in, in my mind, uh, you live somewhere south of the M25, so which makes you instantly qualified to talk about everything that happens down there, including Brighton. <laughs> so I'm assuming you've got a very good perspective. Uh, I need your percentage and your analysis of Poyet. Um, I don't think Poyet was necessarily the man that I would have chosen, but he's done better than I thought he would have done up to this point. I agree with Alison that he will keep them up. I think there's probably now a 70-75% chance they will stay up. Cass, you get the final word. Uh, Percentage chance of Sunderland staying up. Well, first I thought Gus Poyet was a lucky man to get the job. I thought that Brighton, that he had a big budget, the best attendances in the championship, paid big wages, um, and didn't really achieve as much as a lot of people 
sort of promoted him in the game for a big job. But with that, I think he's gone back to basics at Sunderland. He's united the group, uh, which has shown, clearly shown in the couple of home performances we've seen. The teams that are worse than them, without doubt, is Palace and Fulham. So now you're coin flipping between the Norwiches, the West Ham's. Will Hull drop back in there? West Ham? Well, I think West Ham have got a real problem that by Christmas and not having Andy Carroll is a massive problem for them because the way that Sam wants to play the game. So I think they're going to still struggle to win games uh, like we saw at Carroll Road at the weekend. Um, I would give them a 50-50 chance. I think they're nowhere near out of the woods yet. I think it will take a lot of hard work. That he's doing, he's doing it the right way so far, but there's lots and lots of... I think Fulham is the real big one because I do think that they're the team that absolutely look like they're going to go down with Palace at the moment. But a change of manager and a change of things like Sunderland did because it easily happened at Craven Cottage. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In our debate this week, um, well, I, it was interesting because I had successive tweets from Gary Neville and, and Matt Dickinson on my Twitter timeline, which really intrigued me. Gary Neville talking about how he thought that this was the, the best Premier League that he's ever seen, including all the ones he, he played in. And then uh, we had Matt Dickinson basically saying the opposite of that, which I thought was, was interesting because um, I wonder, I'm just sort of imagining the two of them sitting there debating it, uh, debating the issue over a glass of uh, freshly squeezed orange juice. But um, we're not going to talk about that, uh, although that might be one for, for another time. Um, I was struck by, by, by what, you, what you said in your inquest, your, your issue, um, Tony, with, uh, with penalty kicks mm. and, and, and diving and so on. And Obviously, we had Ashley Young in midweek again after David Moyes told him not to do it. We can debate whether Ramirez was a dive. I think most people would probably agree that Ramirez, uh, that was not a penalty, uh, not necessarily a dive perhaps, but definitely not uh, a penalty. We, we had this bizarre incident at the end of the, the, the Stoke and Swansea game with that handball, which, uh, which nobody saw. 
except for the referee and Asmir Begovic. I want to chuck this over to you. What's your take on penalties? You suggested to me before, we're getting too obsessed with penalties. Mm. I think it's controlling the game. I think it's controlling outcomes of games, Gab. Every Monday morning, I'm having conversations with people about slight contact, having pundits go on TV and slow down action that they're seeing on a game to prove that there's the minimum amount of contact for a penalty. I'm finding it... I'm, I'm disheartened by the penalties become one of the most important weapons of winning a football match or losing a football match. And sometimes, like the draw for West Brom. And I'm wondering where penalties are going because where we were 10 years ago, we've gone accelerated to a level that is now becoming... It's actually becoming laughable. I think it's an embarrassment for football. And I wonder whether the penalty even should exist in the next decade because if we go the next decade like the last decade is gone... We're going to have penalties even worse than we're seeing now. Football has to, has to come to terms. They need to do something about this particular decision that is determining the outcome of too many football matches. What would your solution be? Well, the way I felt after this weekend, I want to get, I want to get rid of it. It's like, what, you know, well, the change the laws award, are kicking people Award behind. direct free kicks in the, in, in, in well, the penalty area instead? I'm sure we can find some solution, Gab, but bottom line is, if we, don't, if we ain't going to be prepared to use technology like... We're ignoring in football. The authorities are totally turning a blind eye. They've only just about give us, thank, thankfully, goal line technology. That's oh, one great thing. This is a, the, an incident that's happening game in, game out, right. every level across Britain and across the world in football. On a regular basis, Gab, this is happening. So I have a real bee in my bonnet about where penalties and, and what they're doing to the game. I think in some ways they're ruining football. Alison, you're our... Resident, closest thing we have to a qualified ref. Do you see where Cass is coming from? Do you have a solution? I do see where he's coming from because I was at the Chelsea game and it wasn't a penalty. And, you know, you know, Steve Clark says, well, there's no point in me going to talk to the referee because he might apologise. Referees do occasionally apologise to me, but I don't get the points back. That they, you know, all the hard work just goes in a puff of smoke because of one mistake, one, one poor interpretation of what's happened. And um, it's definitely worth debating. The trouble is you, you, you wouldn't get rid of them because they're there to protect crass defending. So if you were to suddenly say, well, we're not going to have penalties anymore, there'd be an awful lot of, of, of hacking down in the penalty area because people, defenders or anybody knew they could they could get away with it. Uh, and it's impossible to bring in a system where you only award a penalty if you're sure that it was non-controversial that's why the referee's there he has to make an interpretation I don't know I don't know I don't know technology let me just finish when you go to referee school you are you, what you're doing when you go to referee school you are told that you can't possibly know everything all that matters is that you're, you're you behave sure you behave as though you're 100% certain about what you've done and no decision is a bad bad thing make a decision so you either say play on or you give the free kick or in, if it's well, in a penalty area that becomes a penalty so maybe there should be some discussion with referees about how these incidents that are close calls if you're not absolutely certain what you've seen and you're not getting any feedback from your assistants that they're absolutely certain and let's stop giving. Let's stop giving these 50, what seem to be fifty-fifty decisions. You know, I, I don't. I, this is weird because um, Guillaume Balaguer and I make a list of things that we only hear in this country and nowhere else. Um, and one of those is the referee has to be a hundred percent sure to give it. It's, it's just weird. I, I hear it repeated all the time. And surely, Alison, that's not what they taught you in referee school. 
Because no, the no, reality that's, is... That's not what I said. Well, you're saying in the future would be good. They know you're not going to be 100% sure. What, what you're taught... Well, it's a while ago now that I did it. I mean, maybe it's changed. But what they tell you is the worst thing you can do as a referee is give the impression that you're not sure, that you don't know. Right, I agree you with you. Lose, right, you right. will lose credibility. Okay, you, will lose the, you will lose discipline. It will all go to pot if you act like... Oh, I'm not sure what to do. So you pretend, <laughs> you pretend. I didn't. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm going to pretend I'm absolutely certain that that was a free kick, and that's the only way you can keep control of a match. All right, guys. So we, we we've, we've got referees pretending they're sure when they're not. Wouldn't it be easy if we just accept the fact that our referee and and there's better referees and worse referees mm-hmm. makes his best educated guess about what happens? Um, Gab, I've had referees who are refereeing today say to me they made that decision on a gut reaction as well. So they've got a gut reaction. They actually don't know. They're coin flipping whether they know. I think you'll find Mark Halsey is no longer refereeing. Well, there are referees out there. (laughs) There are other ones. But Gab, if we we choose to ignore technology, which is our our system. Okay, but we're not not having a debate Uh, about technology. But But you know what? Sorry, on on, on the point of technology, you you will recall, and and, and this, I'm going to bring Jim on this too, because... uh, this whole issue with people like, oh, look, retroactive action, ban them for 10 games, right, which you hear all the time. So there have been situations where people have tried to introduce retrospective punishment for players who dive. And what they found is that there are certain obvious situations where players cheat, like players who score, like, like Girardino got done in Italy. He scored with his hand once and went off to celebrate. And it was obvious he'd scored uh, you know, with his hand, Paul Scholes style. I would extend it out to situations where the player gets struck in the chest and he goes down clutching his face. You're obviously cheating. I throw the book at you. However, when it comes to actual diving and accentuating falls, whether it's Ashley Young or you go back to the, 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 the case with Eduardo when Arsenal played Celtic, um, I think it was uh, some six or seven years ago, what you find is that it's actually extremely difficult to be 100% certain that somebody was intentionally conning the referee. Because we need to be clear on this, that if I foul you while we're playing football, it doesn't matter if it was intentional or not. If it's a foul, it's a foul. But with simulation, it has to be intentional. There's no accidental diving. Yeah, but Gab, I'm not arguing the fact. I don't, I'm not caring about retrospective well, you, you know, but You're talking about video technology. No, I'm talking about instant, available, why the game is happening, a decision, that's a penalty or not. Right. And what I'm telling you that. is that a lot of times this is inconclusive. I must admit that the, the goal yesterday that gave um, the, the Stoke equaliser for the handball by Routledge I have seen every conceivable angle that would have been available to the officials, frame by frame, and there is absolutely nothing that suggests that he could remotely have handled that. It's, it's either so bad a decision from Bobby Madeley that it's, it's an extraordinary decision, or he's seen something that, from his position, is a lot clearer than every camera in the ground was able to pick up. And I have to think that it was the latter. You can have the video technology and you can look at it and you can go, well, do you know what? We've looked at this for three minutes and we're still not sure. So I think that there are incidents where it isn't cut and dry. The Ramirez one, on the other hand, I think is completely different. Well, Mourinho doesn't think the... the, the uh... <laughs> Well, why are you oh, laughing? Because it's obvious. Well, you Chelsea boys have to stick together. Gab, Gab, all I want is more consistency. And, of course, there's always going to be an extreme example of a penalty where, like Jim has just said, that we, we, we can't conclusively give an answer or the referee's totally good. But having that available, the game has to move forward. Right. I'm I, sorry. I, 
I will make a suggestion. I will, I will throw this out there. I want to start with Allison and tell me what you think of it, right? If, if you want an explanation, inclusion referees file a report afterwards. How about at some point, whether, whether it's Monday morning or, or in the evening, referees are, are, are made available to the media and they go and they explain, not justify, because, you know, we all appreciate it's difficult and so on. I mean, Michael Laudrup touched upon this, but they just explain their decisions after having watched it, maybe with the help of video, and they show what, you know, what their perspective was at the time, and they explain. And maybe if we did this, we would kind of realize that, you know, it can be a difficult job and some people make more mistakes than others. I think that that would undermine quite a large proportion of officials. Why? Because of what I said about going on TV or going public and saying it was, as I as the game was progressing and the speed at which the game was being played and the mood of the game, I felt in that context that it was a deliberate trip, for example. Right. And then the cameras will show, a replay might show that it wasn't. That it wasn't, And, yeah. then, and then I don't see where you go from there. There's well, where you go from there say, is you go from there, this guy made a mistake. So Alex Ferguson is widely considered to be the greatest ever British manager, right? If, if we put him on TV and he said, like, at the time, at the speed I was, my mind was working at, I thought Bebe was going to be a phenomenal signing. And Cleberson, too. I mean, no, so no, what? No, you made a mistake. Exactly. So don't. what? They don't. They don't talk like that. People don't talk like that, which is why referees who already get a lot of criticism will get even more because I think they will just end up looking stupid. It's very hard to say that you stand by a decision or explain why you did something when the cameras are telling the world that you just weren't on it. It wasn't correct. You cannot referee a match thinking at the back of your head, oh, my goodness, I'm going to have to go on television. You'd end up giving nothing at all because out of fear. JP, I, I personally care more about the spectacle of football than I care about how referees feel. And actually, having had relationships with several referees, not relationships of those kind, casts, what I found is that they don't like explaining themselves because their words get taken out of context and blah, 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 but they like to explain themselves privately and they're actually, some of them are actually quite open to explaining how they made mistakes and why they made mistakes. Is, is, it, is, it, I mean, is it as much of a lose-lose proposition as, as Alison suggests? I'd like to see it as well. Uh, and it's something I've talked about before, but the bottom line is what the referees say is that the, one of the principal reasons why it is never going to happen, certainly under the referee chiefs will, will do everything they can to make sure it doesn't happen because what they want to encourage are the, be- are the people who are the best referees, not the people who can stand in front of a camera with a referee shirt on and represent referees the best. And there's a subtle difference because they feel that if any referee is coming through as a fantastic referee but isn't a very good communicator necessarily with the media, might be a great communicator with the players on the pitch but would not be happy standing in front of a camera and wouldn't do himself justice standing in front of a camera, they don't want that person to be ruled out of being the best referee in the country. And that is, rightly or wrongly, that is one of the things that they hide behind to make sure that this will never happen. I would like to see it happen, though. I'm with you, Gab. I must admit, I think that... You know, back in sort of the old days, 20 years ago, I remember doing two or three games where there were decisions. One of the old referees, Eddie Ilderton, made a decision that seemed at the time to be very strange. And he fronted up in front of the cameras and he said, look, this is why this is what I saw. You've seen replays. I didn't see a replay. This is what I saw. This is why I gave it. You can debate whether it's right or wrong, but I'm telling you that that was my train of thought and that is why the decision was made. And I think that if you can get to a stage where referees will do that and even if there's no second question, yeah, but what if, if it's just a statement, this is what I saw and it was on this basis that I gave it, 
I would like to see that, but I don't think it will ever happen. I don't see, Jim, how that's... It might might be nice. You might think it's it, it's good telly or it's, it's fun to watch a referee give no. their explanation. I don't see how it helps football for them to just look... look Stupid every week. No, um, it's it's not. Of course, it's not a question of entertainment or or making it good television at all. I just think that the you know, transparency. Sometimes you see a, a decision like the like the the Routley Chamball yesterday. It wasn't initially wasn't obvious what he'd given it for, whether it was for a push by Routledge, whether it was a handball, whether it was a handball by Leon Britton on the line, you just didn't know. And I think it's in that kind of situation that if a referee, I'm not asking for them to be strung up and made accountable and, and it, it, to be the you know 21st century of being put in the, the equivalent of being put in the stocks and having tomatoes lobbed at them by, by the broadcasters. That's not what I'm asking for. I just sometimes, as a fan, you look at a decision and you say, well, I don't understand what you've given. I don't understand where you're coming from with that. And it's just a, an explanation of the thought processes rather than um, being made to be a laughing stock. All right, enough of that. Time for some quick hits. Uh, now, I was going to ask why Costel Pentilimon, all six foot eight inches of him, didn't come up for that set piece, but I realize that probably nobody cares. So instead, I will ask um, Alison about Liverpool. Uh, Brendan Rodgers' men roll to a 4-0 win over Fulham. Gerrard rolls back the years. I have to ask, Alison, please rank him in the pantheon of Liverpool greats. I'm assuming he's somewhere behind Kenny Dalglish, and because it's you, Stevie Highway as well, right? Well, we seem to have a how great is Stephen Gerrard question on the podcast almost every fortnight. So I think that in itself shows that he's, he's, a, he's a great player, and we just love repeating the fact he's a great player. More interesting, I think, is the fact is how for how much longer is he going to be a great player? He's 33. He played well against Fulham because Fulham were poor and I don't really get why, why Brendan Rodgers isn't managing his time on the field better. He's a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic captain of the team. You don't have to play him every match. and there'll be, there, there will come a time when he gets an injury because he's being overplayed and Liverpool have got to learn how to play without him. All right, so where does he rank? Where does he rank? Yes. Well, I mean, in my opinion, yes, he ranks I'm... somewhere, somewhere, oh, I don't know. Top five? Top, yeah, top five. But not top three? Maybe top three. Really tough day for Fulham, many calling for Martin Yol's head. Um, JP, if you were in charge, would you sack him? And will the club sack him? Uh, I think the club will sack him. Uh, it's the home form um, that is going to be the problem for him. And I think that um, I would imagine that Monday, the 25th of November, might be the day that he goes. Because I think that if Fulham extend their poor run at home to one win in 10 at Craven Cottage, that will be enough and he'll be out after the next home game. I don't think you can sack him necessarily on the back of a 4-0 defeat at Liverpool. You've got to look at Liverpool's last home game as a 4-1 win against West Brom where... Uh, that flattered West Brom something chronic, and then a fortnight later they go and should have won at Chelsea. So I don't necessarily think that you can take one performance in isolation, albeit a really poor one away from home. But Shad Khan will be running out of patience. He has shown in his short time at Jacksonville that he's uh, more than happy to hire and fire when results don't go their way. He's, he's been in there less than two years. He's already got rid of one underperforming coach with another under fire and uh, made sure that another was disposed with, of just before he took over. So clearly he's a, ha- a man who's quite happy to, to make a change at the top. I think that uh, the transfer policy at Fulham has not been great. 
they've left themselves with too many of the same type of players. It's too old, the average age of the squad, and I think Yarl's days, unfortunately, are numbered. Uh, let's move on to West Brom. They get a point at Stamford Bridge, and it could have easily been three without an Andre Mariner decision we discussed earlier. But Cascarino, on your inquest today, you suggest that Peter Cech could maybe, maybe even should be facing the axe? It's on the brink. Some of his goalkeeping decisions and errors. Yeah, but they're not going to bring in Courtois in January. Well, so uh, I, Mourinho. What's he going to do? Play the old guy? Casillas in Real Madrid, as you know, got dropped and got dropped for very few mistakes, but he did make some. The goal at Everton, I thought he was flat footed. He could totally have just. Just moved his feet a bit quicker, got off the line and took the goal that Naismith got. Then I saw, obviously, the goal that Aguero got for Man City, and it was a great strike. I think that's a, a goalkeeper's bread and butter, the way, that, you know, just near his hand, I think he can tip it over. Then, obviously, the second goal at the weekend against West Brom, a really poor goalkeeper here. And I, I really feel that Petr Cech is going to be one of the ones that could be made a scapegoat the, for Chelsea's failings in games like the weekend. One of the weird things that Chelsea, and obviously they do have a, a, a I guess a rel- pretty reliable backup in, in, in Schwarzer, and the nice thing about Schwarzer is that you know if you did make the change, Schwarzer could see you to the end of the season, but you wouldn't have to worry about signing up long term because he's so old, and then you could bring in Courtois or whatever. The amazing thing though is that um, already stop it. Um, Peter Cech is so tight with Christoph Lollishon. The, uh, the the Chelsea goalkeeping coach that <laughs> it would majorly blow up if they were to make that change. Palace and Everton draw a good point for Mr. Millen, but they'll have a new boss after the break. Allison, who do you think it will be, and who should it be? Uh, well, the only name at the moment left left in the pot is Karanka, and everyone's been going, "Oh my goodness!" But he's never managed. How would he? How would he cope? I I mean, I quite. I mean, I'm. Not, I'm not a Palace fan, so I mean, if as a Palace fan, I'd be worried. But as a, as just as a sort of neutral observer, I think it would be great fun indeed if if um, the Spaniard came over. Why would it be and... fun? And he's Basque. He Sorry, likes be, he likes to be referred to as Basque, not Spanish. But why would it be fun to have Aitor Carranca? Why would it be fun? Yeah, Mourinho's lackey. Why? Be- well, be- simply because it doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you've got a club in uh, Palace's. I mean, and also the, the the owners of Palace have said said initially it was very important to have someone with a connection to the club who understood the club and how important it was for the club to survive. And to go from that standpoint to flying in Karanka for an interview seems slightly bizarre. But and it doesn't make sense. But then you know at Southampton people were going, who the heck is Pochettino and why? What does he know mm. about football in the Premier League and on okay. the south coast? And what do we mean? So. All right. it, it's interesting. All right. Foolish people were saying, who the hell is Pochettino? And Mr. Cortez's wisdom was once again revealed to be correct. Um, but speaking of Southampton, uh, Adam Lalana turned in a masterclass, and uh, Saints are now third in the table. Now, apart from the usual familiar praise for Mr. Cortez, or Dr. Cortez, as I like to call him, uh, who proved that he is far more clever than Alan Pardew and Nigel Atkins, and all the mugs and servants who criticized him before, JP should... Cortese be planning um, uh, to, to have his Tuesdays and Wednesdays uh, busy next season with the Champions League? It's too early for that yet, um, but you can't take anything away from what's, uh, what they've achieved. But when it comes down to it, they are third. This time last year, West Brom were third and finished in the bottom half or finished just inside the top half. I think if Southampton will finish seventh or eighth this year, 
then that's a great achievement. If you look at the number of points that have been picked up over the last 12 months, Southampton, I think, would be eighth. They might be seventh after the weekend, but they would be seventh or eighth. That's where I expect them to finish at the end of the season. They don't have quite enough depth in the squad if they have significant injuries. But seventh or eighth is a wonderful achievement. Uh, Second win over a London club in two weeks for Newcastle as Tim Cruel saves everything in sight. Uh, Cass, you get... Two goalkeeping questions this week. Are you lucky? Uh, was it just a case of Spurs dominating and being unlucky, as AVB seemed to suggest? There's a lot of frustration in there. Um, were they uh, unlucky? I, no, I wouldn't go that far. I, I thought, yeah, Tim Crow had a really good game and pulled off some fine saves in the game. A lot of them quite comfortable for a top keeper. But there was a lot of disappointment things as well, though, for AVB. I thought... Paulinho, I thought Saldaldo. Townsend. Townsend, disappointing. They looked like they lacked a bit of belief. That was a strange thing. Ericsson, confidence. You know, they look, for a team that's been flying so high, that was a real disappointing aspect of their game. Uh, did he win them the match, uh, match uh, Tim Krull? He played a big part, but I thought Newcastle's a team, you know, they really were spot on and denied Tottenham a lot, a lot of space in areas. And hey, like Remy, keeps doing what he's doing. There you go, the magic of Alan Pardew. Got one for you now, Gab. We're talking about Dortmund losing, Bayern Munich setting new records, but I'd rather hear about the two Champions League finals that took place this weekend. That's right. There's a Champions League uh, beyond the UEFA Champions League. In fact, there were two of them uh, this weekend, uh, and I think that they're both really, really good tales. Uh, in Africa, Al-Akhli of Egypt uh, and my mate uh, Mohamed Abu Trika, who we discussed last week, and so that means that they qualify uh, for the Club World Cup. It, it is special, and, and please watch the Club World Cup. It might be your last chance to see Mohamed Abu Trika uh, play. And the other one was in, in Asia, the Asian Champions League, um, Guangzhou Evergrande beating uh, FC Seoul, Guangzhou Evergrande, uh, coached by a certain Marcello Lippi, who becomes the first manager in history to win the Champions League in two different continents. And, of course, he's also won a small thing we call the World Cup, and he says that apart from winning the World Cup, this equals any other footballing success he's ever had. All right, thanks to my panel, Tony Cascarino, Jim Proudfoot, and, of course, Alison Rudd. Please check out details of our live shows, uh, specifically the one coming up in Newcastle on uh, the 20th of November. Uh, you can use the links on our SoundCloud page as well. And you can write to us, gamepodcast at thetimes.co.uk. So many of you do just that every single week, and it's a pleasure to hear from you. Till next time, thank you for listening. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away.